0: Is the most wonderful time of the year. We're moving into a, a season where we can pause and reflect on the birth of our Savior, where we finally have hope. You know, there wasn't there wasn't really hope like we have in Jesus. And every year it seems like, although I haven't had it this year, so maybe people have given up on me. But every year there's usually uh, one or two uh, Christmas Scrooges that come out of the woodwork, and and it's, it's never anybody here that attends the church, seriously, it's usually somebody in the community I know. And I do have to say this, I want to say this, in fairness to them, they're, they're always kind and compassionate and nice and they feel this urgency to tell me this and to, to help me, um, to help you all know that Christmas is a pagan day that should not be celebrated. And um, again, their, their hearts, I believe, is right, their information's not that good. A couple of things I just want to say if you ever run into that is um, it's really what you're going to make it. And I can tell you that even the research that this is a pagan holiday, even Encyclopedia Britannica will talk about how they highly doubt that the church wanted to do something and in, intermingle with the pagan world because they were so anti-pagan. And so that's probably not true. And then people will say, but Tracy, do you really think that Jesus was born on December 25th? I wanna say this, I highly, highly doubt he was born on December 25th, but I don't know if that matters. Um, Darlene's dad, Jim, uh, Wayne's dad, uh, we celebrated his birthday for decades on the wrong day. Got his birth certificate, which he was thrilled because now he had two birthdays a year, you know, people wouldn't break out of the old pattern, so he'd have a couple, and then Sister Wilma, when she got her birth certificate, she found out she'd been celebrating her birthday for decades on the wrong day, did it make the celebrations any less legitimate, any less beautiful, any less wonderful? No. You say, how in the world did somebody forget their birthday? By having 15 children. Uh, Darlene and Wayne, if you didn't know that they're from a family of 15. I don't even know how they remember their names. I haven't figured them all out yet, and, you know, after 30-some years. So let alone birth dates. So that doesn't matter. I also want you to know that there is nowhere in Scripture, zero place in Scripture, we are commanded to celebrate Christmas. Zero. There's also zero place in scripture that we're forbidden to celebrate Christmas. So I say let's embrace it. Let's set our our compass back to true north. And there's also an interesting thing about the church. We say that we as the church, the Christian world, should influence the world. We say that we should be transformative and transform the world around us. So let's just pretend for a second that it really was pagan and the church came into that situation We won. Let's take the win. You look up in the dictionary, and I guarantee you, you'll find out that Christmas, it'll say something like, Christmas is the day the Christian religion sets aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It doesn't give you, you know, discourse on some ancient, you know, pagan thing. So I just want to say this. If it did start out that way, we won. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, we always say, let's transform the world. Uh, We did, but now we don't like it. We're going to have to unravel that. No, don't unravel it. Just celebrate Jesus. If I was going to complain anything about, G- about Christmas, it would be the materialism of it. I think that's a good argument. It would be the fact that if we're not careful, we can get sidetracked on Santa and Rudolph and, and Frosty and forget that Jesus really is the reason for the season. And it can all be about, I hope I get, I hope I get, I hope I get. And I don't know how you unravel that out of a little kid because, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just so exciting to see all that. But we, we always want to make sure that we keep our focus, our worship for Jesus. I also think it would be a horrible strategy of the devil. You know the two holidays that they want to tell you is pagan and we shouldn't celebrate? Christmas and Easter. Do you know the two days of the year that more people are led to a relationship with Jesus? Christmas and Easter. It seems like it would be a really bad idea for Satan to come up with this and say, well, that didn't work very well. More people come to know Jesus during the Christmas season and the Easter season than any other time of the year. So let's take the win and let's enjoy it. Now, we'll move past the Scrooges. We'll move on to something else. Regifting. gifting okay? Just to feel like I need to talk about this. Re-gifting. Re-gifting. is often seen as, I got this horrible gift I don't like, and I'm going to pawn it off on somebody else. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes you get a gift that you really do like, but you already have one. And you think, boy, somebody else would like it, and you can re-gift it. Um, also, I just want to say this. If you are a re-gifter, which I'm not opposed to, just keep track of who gave you what, you know, because it's really bad. It's your first year in the family. You married into a family. Your in-laws gave you a gift. The next Christmas, you give it back to them. At least move it to the other side of the family. You know, give it, you know take it to work or school or something like that. So be, if you are a re-gifter, you know, keep track of who gave you what, because that could be a little embarrassing, so beware of that. Well, I think we're going to talk about a, a wonderful re-gifting, and that's the gift of Jesus. Uh, sometimes a gift is not just uh, uh, something we have too much of that we're going to pass along, or something we don't like. There also is such a thing as re-gifting. You might have seen somewhere on a TV show somewhere that, you know, the the eldest boy of this next generation is getting ready to propose, and Mama gives him a ring. This ring was on your great-great-grandmother's finger, and it's beautiful, and it's an heirloom, and it's precious, and it has all kinds of value. And you're now going to give that to your fiance. Some, some regifting can be like that. It's very precious. It's very powerful in monetary and emotional, you know, coinage as well. And when I think about Jesus, I think let's regift him to every generation. Let's pass him along to our children, our children's children, our children's children, and we can say, wow, Jesus was a great joy to grandma and grandpa, and to your mom and dad, and to you, and to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. Today, we're going to talk about Christmas in the Old Testament. We're going to discover that it goes all the way back to there. There's something about a solution, because Jesus is, is a solution. There's something about a solution. You don't need a solution unless you have a problem. Correct? You don't need to fix something. Sometimes you've heard this saying, you're answering a question no one's asking. Well, with a real solution it has to answer a real problem. Now, I love commercials because most of what we're sold, a high percentage of is is sold to us to solve a problem. You gotta fix this problem. Now, some of the problems aren't too much of a problem, so they tried to accentuate them, to make them bigger than they are. Like, for instance, they come out with a magic mop. You would swear when they show you the old way of mopping that unless you have a PhD as a sanitation engineer, you cannot use a mop in a bucket. If you ever see a commercial like that, it's just almost, it's nearly impossible. And then, of course, hanging a picture on a wall. I I always think that's fascinating because they come out with some miracle hook that'll hook pictures because we all know, if you watch the commercial, unless you are a master carpenter with 10 years of experience, you cannot hang a picture. Because you watch the commercial and the guy that's trying to do it, there's a hole the size of a softball by the time he's done. He can't hang a picture. So they're trying to make the problem bigger than what it is. In in kind of recent future, um, and some of you won't relate to this and won't know what I'm talking about, uh, some of you younger folks here. But when I was a kid, we had a problem. Uh, Households of America had a problem. It was the fact that when you were watching TV when I was a kid, you had to get off the couch and walk a tremendous journey of sometimes six to eight feet. I guess if you had a huge house, you might even walk ten feet to change a channel on a TV set. I know, some of you are saying, Oh, what were you barbarians? Yes, we were. And in fact, that is the reason for more parents having children than anything back in that era was they needed somebody to change the channel because they were sick and tired of changing the channel. So you remember if you lived in that era, mom and dad didn't get up and change the channel. You got up and changed the channel. Then we decided one day, this is way too much work. This is crazy. And so we took all the power of science and engineering and we came up with, the remote. Y'all do know what a remote is, right? And you have this little thing in your hand and you can turn on the TV with it. And you can go to different apps on it and you can go to different channels and different programs just by pushing a button but one day we thought that's a lot of buttons I have to push well, what are we in the stone age in the dark ages there needs to be a renaissance and so there was voice command so now we went now no longer do you want a lowly regular remote you want to push a button and talk I'm just waiting I don't know if I'll live long enough but I'm waiting to see the day where we say talk you might actually have to talk to make the TV come on and go to the station I want to. So maybe there'll be a telepathy TV or something. I don't know, where we're just thinking, ah, oh, there we go. Now we have a program that we're looking for. But it's always, it's always something to fix a problem. Well, we have a problem, and this problem created the, what I call the very first Christmas verse in the Bible. Now here's the problem. It goes all the way back to the garden. We have Satan or the serpent comes into the garden, He's talking to Adam and Eve, talking to Eve specifically. The Bible says that Adam was there with her. He says, so God says you can't eat of any of these trees, huh? Now, it's interesting because we can pick on Eve. You and I know this story, and we still fall for it. We still fall for it today. The servant says, so you, you, you can't eat of any of these trees. Like, oh, no, he said we can eat of, there's hundreds of trees here, maybe thousands of trees we can eat from. We just can't eat from. That particular tree, Satan says, "Oh yeah, that's that's what I figured." You know, get your mind off all the trees you can't eat from, and follow me for a second. The devil says, "I want you to get fixated on the one tree you can't eat from," and she does. She gets fixated on that. He said, "Let me tell you the problem here. God's trying to hold you back. That's always his plan. God's God's trying to hold you back." God doesn't want you to be everything you can be. God, Here's how we said today. God does not want you to be your best self. And he's trying to hold you back. Actually, Eve, when I hang around you for a little bit, I can see this. God's scared of your competition. He knows that when you eat that, you'll be like him. Oh, no, God said that we shouldn't eat or even touch it lest we die. You will not surely die. What you'll do is you'll just become amazing, and God's jealous because God's always trying to hold you back. God's always trying to keep you from really enjoying life. In fact, the the cultural thing is this. If it even hints of pleasure or fun or joy or something, God is against it, and so he's trying to stop it. So she does get fixated on the tree, and she looks at that fruit, and she says, well, the fruit is pleasing to the eye. So it must have been beautiful. Just a little side note, it was not an apple. Just, I mean, it's always drawn as an apple. was not an apple. The, the, the fruit's pleasing to the eye. It's not naturally poisonous, so it's good for food. And it's desired to make one wise. And I also wonder if not only was Satan tempting her with, look who you can be, but I also just suspicion, the story doesn't tell, that she really liked God. And to be like God wouldn't be a bad thing. And so she took the fruit and ate of it. And we all know the story. When she ate of that fruit, she became an Adam too, much more like the devil than like God. She not only knew the difference between good and evil, she not only knew now what sin was, she had participated in sin, something that Satan had done that God had never done. And we got broken. We got broken. And we couldn't fix ourselves either. And so we know the story too that immediately God says, we're going to throw him out of the garden. Now, I I am amazed at how people who don't know God or know hardly anything about God know so much about God. Well, of course he threw him out of the garden because he's belligerent. He's mean. He's short-tempered. He gets agitated and irritated. He got ticked off at them that they didn't behave, and so he threw him out. But I just wonder if we look at the Bible, if there's not something more precious than that. In Genesis 3.22 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Let me tell you another trick of the devil. It's always peppered with a little truth. It's just never the whole truth. And a partial truth is a lie. And that's why the scripture says that Satan is a liar. I think it's the Message Bible says, When Satan speaks a lie, he speaks his native tongue. He's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. And it says, The scripture goes on and says, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What if man, in a broken, sinful, fallen state, had eaten of the tree of life and now could live forever in a broken, fallen, sinful state? What a horrible situation. God's a redeemer. God's going to buy him back. And so he makes sure that they can't reach out their hand and eat in that condition and live forever. So here's the problem we're broken, we can't fix ourselves. We need a Christmas intervention. And so then we come to what I believe is the first Christmas verse in the Bible in Genesis 3.15 where God is speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity, which means hatred or animosity, I will put hatred between you and the woman, speaking about Eve and women thereafter, and between your seed and her seed, capital S, her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I really like the New King James Version, because I think on this particular verse, it really lays it out well. He takes the word seed, some, some translate offspring, which isn't a, bad, it isn't a bad translation, but just in my mind, different words give me different pictures in my mind. And so it's not just there's going to be lots of offspring, but there's going to be a seed, capital S, they capitalize the S, because this is a specific seed, this is a person, and so... He says, there's going to be enmity and hatred between your seed and her seed. And I truly do not believe he was talking about snakes and women, although I don't know a lot of women that like snakes, but it's really, there's a spiritual thing that's going on here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So he calls it her seed. That's another thing. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I find this fascinating, because most of the time in the Bible, it talks about seed. It refers to a man. We are the seed of Abraham. There's so many things in the Bible like that that talk about that. But here it's her seed. Her seed. Not man's seed. Because Jesus was not going to be born by the will of man, but by the will of God. And we see it here in the Old Testament, another Christmas verse, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will. We'll call him Emmanuel, which I put in parentheses, which means God with us. God with us. There's going to be a son that's going to be born. It's going to be the capital S seed. And he, well, let's read in the next verse, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, we just sang this, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's no doubt we're talking about Jesus here. That just, this can't fit anybody else but Jesus. Of the greatness of his government peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, which fulfilled a prophecy as well, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Hmm. Now, why is this important? I want us to see what happens with this whole Christmas season. Why is this important? Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to live in a different kingdom. We are, so as citizens of a different kingdom, we should live differently, think differently, behave differently, have different values, different understanding, different insights about how to do life. That's what we're supposed to be. And we see in these verses that Jesus is going to reign He's going to to uphold, he's going to establish this kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom, we are called out of a kingdom. Colossians 1.13, I don't have a verse for it, but Colossians 1.13 says that we're called out of the kingdom of darkness and we're translated, transferred, whatever translation you have, into the kingdom of the Son he loves, into the kingdom of Jesus. So there's kingdoms going on. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of Jesus. As we come to Jesus, we're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And so we're supposed to reign with Jesus. We're supposed to establish and uphold his kingdom. Isaiah pointed out that there's two key components to the kingdom. Now, there's many more, but two key ones, righteousness and justice. But it's righteousness as God defines it. See, hu- human beings always want to redefine what is right and redefine what is righteous. But only the eternal God can do so. But everybody has a line. I'm always amazed at this in the world because the world is picking on Christians. You shouldn't do this and you shouldn't say that and you shouldn't believe that and you shouldn't judge that and you shouldn't do this. But listen, everybody has a line. Everybody has a line. I remember I was watching, this dates me, uh, I was watching Phil Donahue. Some of you, who, Phil, who, Phil? Not Dr. Phil, Phil Donahue. And he was interviewing a Christian. He said, oh, He said, you can't tell me how to live. You shouldn't put your values on me. And I thought for a second, I thought, Phil, you have a value too. Now the Christian's value may be here according to the word and your value may be here but there's values below that. See, there's always been a secular value that you should be able to do anything you want as long as it doesn't infringe upon my rights. Now I want to say this. That's a value statement. And not everybody lives by that value statement. You know, there are people who will gladly bust open your door and steal everything in there. And if you said, well you shouldn't do that, that infringed upon my rights. They could say, Says who? You just made a value statement. You just made an ethical statement that this is the way you have to behave. So everybody has one. They're just maybe at all different levels. But no matter what, everybody has one. You ever watch an old mob movie? These mobsters? Let's go whack Jimmy with a baseball bat. And so go to whack him with a baseball. We can't whack him now, his mom just showed up. Oh, yeah. So we wait for mom to leave. So then we can bludgeon him to death because there 's an ethical level i 'm serious you if you ever watch some of these shows there 's like a level of well we, we sure wouldn 't bash him in the head with mama nearby we 've got to wait till she leaves so it 's crazy everybody has a line, and that's why I say who 's going to draw the line there's only one person I know who can draw the line God God has to draw the line he 's the one that's eternal immortal all knowing ever present he has to draw the line and I will promise you. There'll be a time the line is drawn in the word of God that isn't the line where we want it to be drawn. We don't want, we bring the line down a little, God. No, God draws the line. And so justice and righteousness is established as God sees justice, as God sees righteousness, not as you and I see it. So we're called to live in this kingdom, and Christmas is the entrance. Now, there's always God's plan, but Christmas opens up this door, the entrance way. For the vision and dream that God has had for planet Earth to come into fruition. And Christmas is the time where we can be reminded that the vision God has for you, the plan God has for you, actually is opened up. And God is saying, step on in. Everyone, he invites everyone to step on in, to catch this vision and dream that God has for you personally. Hmm. Now, friends, we need to be very careful because it's always been this way, by the way. We just always feel like the generation we live in is, like, crazy. Every generation thought that. I mean, we think, oh, my goodness, the world's never been like this. But talk to your uh, grandparents and ask them about the 1960s. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was kind of a wild, that was kind of a wild time, wasn't it? I heard a guy that said this, if you remember the 1960s, you didn't really participate in it. I thought, okay, I I get what you're saying there. So, the world can be chaos and crazy all around us. And we sometimes want to take matters into our own hands to try to fix it. And I get we're responsible, because we're going to talk about that in a second, but we have to rely upon the Lord. We have to trust him. So, in this crazy, chaotic world, We don't want to forget the lessons that Jesus taught us. Did you know one of the driving forces and passions of the people in the day where where they were talking about the Messiah? In the day when Jesus was born, the passionate driving force of the people was they wanted the Messiah so badly because this Messiah would be a king. And he'd be king of all kings. He'd be lord over all lords. And so if this Messiah could just come, they could free the people of Israel, guess who from Rome? That was their passion. We want to be freed from Rome. I get it. Rome's oppressive. We want Israel to come up to the top, and we want Rome and everybody else to be underneath Israel. And so they're always poking and prodding Jesus to get with the program of setting up an earthly kingdom. They were always doing that. The Simon the Zealot. Uh, the zealots were definitely wanted to do a revolution and overthrow their picking at Jesus, when's the revolution going to start? When's the overthrow going to start? When's this going to start? When's that going to start? And they never could quite seem to get it. They were very disappointed in him. It seemed like Jesus had no passion for self-promotion when it came to politics, when it came to economics, when it came to military. He had no self-promotion in him. He wanted to do all this, or they wanted him to do all this, but he didn't seem to be very interested. And I am saddened that in the church and in in the Christian world... That politics actually have become, I'm not joking about that, have become an idol. We say to ourselves, boy, if only the Democrats could be in power, if only the Republicans could be in power, if only the libertarians could be in power. Government's not the solution for our broken world. Now, I I do want you to know this, so I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying good government's not important. I want good government, 100% for good government. I want good, godly people to lead and rule. I think we should be faithful voters as Christians. And since good godly people seem to be hard to find running for an office, then I want to vote for the person whose policies and platforms best reflect the the scripture, the values of God's word. But when the dust settles, I don't have any trust in a person's skill. I don't have any trust in a political party. I don't have any trust in a form of government. Now, listen to what I'm saying. I want the best people, I want the best policies, I want the best form of government that's available on planet earth, but it's not the answer for the whole world. I'll tell you what we're going to have one day, and this is not a government anybody on earth is trying to get, because it has to work flawlessly in order to work, but the best government ever would be a benevolent dictator. I mean, the word dictator, and you almost choke on hearing that word, a benevolent monarch, Guess what? One day, there'll be a benevolent king who will sit on the throne, will rule this earth. And he's the only one who can pull that off. So if anyone comes and says, Tracy said that a benevolent dictator, so vote for me. I'll be the dictator over the world. No, if it's not Jesus, it's not going to work. So I want the best form of government. I want the best people. I want all of that. But Jesus is the answer. What you and I need to take with us is this message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel. Pilate asked Jesus, so are you a king? And they have this conversation. He said, I'm not a king like you think of being a king, because if I had a kingdom that was of this world, my servants would have fought for me. One of them tried to. Peter drew a sword in the garden, sliced off an ear off one of the soldier's servants, and Jesus was like, time out, guys. Hold on. Stop. Stop. He looks around and says, "Do you really think I am incapable of defending myself?" I could ask the Father right now and get 12 legion of angels. Now legion's 6,000 people. So if you do the math on that, I think it's 72,000. Jesus could have asked the Father and had 72,000 angels there to defend him. And from reading the Old Testament stories, one's all he needed. But so he got 72,000 of them there. So he said, that, see, his destiny, his destiny was not at that moment to set up an earthly kingdom. His destiny for this, shall I shirk back from the death of the cross? No, It's for this reason that I came. Amen. And so he, even though in his humanity he didn't want to go through what he knew was going to go through, a brood, brutal, bloody murder, uh, he did it because that was his destiny. Even the disciples are slow at getting it. If you read Acts chapter 1, you will find out that the resurrected Christ is now among them. He's talking with them. He's eating with them. And guess what they're still fixated on? They say, Jesus, is this the time now when you will establish the kingdom of Israel? (laughs) And just, he's very gracious and patient. (laughs) He's like, so we're still on that topic, are we? (laughs) We're still on that It's not for you to know, he said. He said, here's what I do want you to know that after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you will receive power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the world, because he's up to something. Now, because we think so much earthly, I was reading this little Bible study, and there's this question and answer thing, I'm just going to bring one of the question and answers out, it's on the expectations of the Messiah. It said, how was Jesus different from what people were expecting? Here was the answer in the little study. They wanted a king that would overthrow the Roman government. But Jesus didn't come to set up a kingdom here on earth at this time. Now, that's somewhat correct, but not totally correct. Because I want you to know this. He did come to set up a kingdom. Now, it wasn't like the Roman Empire kingdom. It wasn't like a worldly kingdom. But he did come to set up a kingdom and he did set up a kingdom. We just read in Colossians 1.13, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. And as you read the New Testament, especially the gospels, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. I think it might be Mark, Mark or Matthew will say kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven kind of interchangeably, but he came to set up a kingdom. And so if we're not careful, we still look for an earthly kingdom. So we look around and say, well, we don't see Jesus visibly sitting on a throne, so I guess we'll just kind of do life however we want till he comes back. No, that's a grave error because the New Testament is filled with kingdom message, a kingdom message, a kingdom message. And I want your heart and my heart to be filled with the kingdom message as well. See, stepping into kingdom life can exist on planet Earth right now if we'll focus on Jesus. What a great season to focus on Jesus. We can step into that kingdom life. Christmas is a great time for that. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 6.1, no slide or overhead for that, because I'm just going to give a little snippet of it. Isaiah shows this beautiful picture. It says, in the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. There's this contrast here. Here is king Uzziah, an earthly Aging, decaying man, as opposed to the Lord. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, and his train filled the temple. And the seraphim came out. And with two, they covered their face. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they did fly. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And when Isaiah saw this, he said, I am undone. I'm a dead man. I've seen the Lord. I'm a person of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so God says, well, I'll take care of that. So he takes a, one of the seraphims, go and grabs a coal and cleanses his lips. God's always our solution. We don't have a solution. God is our solution. And the king, In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He's exalted. In the same way, the Holy Spirit awakens us to the the message of the beauty of God and the kingdom of God. In a world, again, that's full of chaos and family and economics and politics and, and wars and rumors of war where jobs and safety and security and economics, everything can fall apart. You know what? We need to be like Isaiah. Get our eyes off of King Uzziah. And put it on the Lord. Because he is high and lifted up. So let's refocus our eyes. On King Jesus. And commit ourselves to a life that's fully engaged with Jesus. Now will you you listen for a second. I mean you might have drifted for a minute. So I want to pull you back. Listen to me. We need to live a life and put our eyes back on Jesus. That's fully engaged in the kingdom. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. We're fully engaged with the kingdom. My life for Christ turned around when I met somebody that showed me that Jesus is Lord 24-7. Because I believe, no one told me this, no one taught me this. It wasn't like the preacher got up and said this, but I just kind of felt like God was your Sunday morning thing. You know, you did that for an hour or two on Sunday mornings, and the rest of life, you try to be a pretty good person and do what you think is right. But no, God says, I want to infiltrate and invade every part of your life. Now, that's a scary thing for some people, because as I often mention, the scripture says that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and has risen again. And we say, but I want to live for myself, but I tell you, there's the good news. It says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it can't really live. And once it falls into the ground and dies, it produces, and we under- we're in an agricultural world, you know that. You take a little packet of wildflowers and sow it around. Next thing you know, you got this whole beautiful field of wildflowers around. What what happened? Life. That seed died. You're holding on too tight to you. You're a seed that has something really beautiful inside you that God has planted. Give it to God. It's a great vision of baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to newness of life. Something new and something beautiful. So we engage. And we don't just throw God some crumbs. You and I have all been guilty of that. So... I'm not picking on you, I've done it, you've done it, where we throw God some crumbs. Hey, if i got a little time left over, a little money, a little energy, a little talent, if there's something left over at the end of my busy week, I may or may not throw God some crumbs. Don't throw God any crumbs. We need to change the way we live. We need to change the way we think. Now we ask, how? How do we do that? Well, first of all, we make a fresh commitment to seek Jesus. Make a fresh commitment to seek Jesus. Now, I get this. We have a life to live, and God's not opposed to that. The scripture says that we seek first the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom again. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Didn't say seek only. You got families, you got jobs, you got hobbies, you got all kinds of things. That's okay. Kept in balance the God says he gave us everything to enjoy. But we begin to say, my first commitment is to seek Jesus. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you do that, I think number two will probably take care of its plate of itself. Jesus will move up to the top of your list you start seeking Jesus falling in love with Jesus he'll start moving up on your list from 12 to 11 to 10 to 7 to 3 and then finally he'll be at the top of the list and when he gets to the top of the list you'll say why in the world did I not put him at the top of the list earlier because he says if you put me at the top of the list Matthew 6:33, I'll cause all these other things that the pagan world's running after to become yours as well wow what a great deal and the third thing is that we actively engage the world around us with Jesus and for Jesus. We don't have to be obnoxious or rude. We're just going to say, hey, I'm going to live this thing. I'm going to, my value system, the way I speak, what I say. You know, I just, I just want to say this. The world and what comes to us is really messed up. Darlene and I had a little show that we liked. It moved from a particular um, network to another network. And so then we go to watch it, and it says, coarse language. And we thought, why? And so it drops a couple F-bombs in and a couple other things, and I thought, we've been watching this for three years. It was fine. And I actually wrote the people, and it wasn't hateful for mean, but I said, I just want you to know this. Was there anyone on planet Earth that thought that show would be so much better if we just had some F-words in it? And wouldn't that show be so much better if we just talked more vulgar, more crass? I don't, think that, I don't think people who drop the F-bomb 50 times a day would say oh that's so much better now thank you so much but that's the world for some reason they believe this is what you want we need to say this is not what I want and so I wrote them a, uh, both this part of two organizations I wrote and told them my heart and it wasn't mean it wasn't horrible it just told them how I felt and so I was thinking because I'm an eternal optimist hey you know what I bet they reworked that whole show and so we watched the next one. And about five minutes or ten minutes in, it dropped an F-bomb. We went, boom. Thank God we didn't have to get him change the channel. We, boop, you know, pushed the button and shut it off, and we'll never watch it again. You say, well, but it's just a word. I don't care. It, it is. So what if it is just a word? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And I know this. I'm guilty, too. So before you say, he's picking on me, I'm picking on me, too. We have watched things in our home I thought if people in human bodies were sitting in our living room talking like that, we'd tell them to knock it off or leave. But we turn it on the TV and we just sit there and listen to it. Oh, yeah, there's all kinds of, oh, that fornicating's beautiful, that adultery's beautiful, that homosexuality's beautiful, this is all beautiful, those F words and that cussing and all that, and we watch all that. And then we think, wow, what a great ploy of the devil. We would never let that go on in our home alive. So... We, we say, hold on, I'm, I'm going to develop a different value system. And so we, we start doing that. And we start engaging the world around us, how we talk, how we act, how we engage, how we love, how we help, how we serve, how we do justice, how we live righteously. And we help establish that kingdom.